Hey, it's Rod from Cincinnati Children's. If you haven't already, download the Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery app. Then when you listen to these colorectal podcasts, you could look at the associated images in the app. Look at x-rays at the same time while Dr. Frischer and Dr. Levitt are talking to you about them. But until then, enjoy the episode. If you've been following this colorectal quiz series, you might have noticed that we hit the ground running. I mean, we dove headfirst into the deep end, having these complex conversations, these really high level in the weeds, detailed cases with some really world renowned pediatric colorectal surgeons. So for this week, we decided let's just take it back. Let's talk about the basics. Let's talk about Hirschsprung's disease. So without further ado, this is the colorectal quiz. Our first patient was a one day old female, 38 weeks gestational age, 3.7 kilograms transferred for failure to pass stool and abdominal distension in the first day of life. Had a normal prenatal course, normal delivery, no real issues. And now is 30 years old, 30 out, is now 30 hours old and still has not passed meconium. What do you want to do? Well, you know, we see this kind of situation all the time. And uh, I think it's important not to jump to the fact that this is a podcast talking about Hirschsprung's disease. So I have a feeling that people already know that this is a patient with Hirschsprung's disease. But I think it's worth taking a moment that babies like this with abdominal distension can have other things wrong with them, both anatomic and physiologic. Right. So uh, we get called to the NICU all the time for neonates with abdominal distension, and we need to get a better history, right? See what's going on prenatally, what are any issues with gestational diabetes or any um, drug abuse or things like that, or um, what's been going on in the first 24 hours. So obviously we want to make sure the baby's stabilized and then we have to do a good physical exam. So, yeah, the other th- the other thing to you know, there are a couple of mim- mimickers of Hirschsprung's disease, um, and you know, one of them, for example, is as you mentioned, opiate in the baby's system. But also, if the mother had a delivery that someone tried to slow down medically with mag sulfate, that can also give you pretty significant um, neonatal abdominal distension. All of those things can look like. Hirschsprung's disease, you got to keep in mind things like hypothyroidism, for example. And then, of course, there's plenty of anatomic things that can go wrong. Of course, imperfect anus uh, might give you significant abdominal distension. Um, uh, Small left colon syndrome, you mentioned the diabetes issue. So just, you know, do a good job thinking through all the other causes of colonic, in particular colonic distension. Um, We're obviously talking about Hirschsprung's disease today. Um, so we have that in the back of our mind, but we need to confirm that. We need to confirm our suspicion. So um, let's start talking about how we would do that. And it's very important. Do a good physical exam. You might feel an abdominal mass. It's very embarrassing to miss an anorectal malformation. Um, so obviously the exam is important. 
And then the resuscitation, IV hydration, NG tube decompression. So again, it's a one-day-old female born at 38 weeks, just about 3.7 kilograms, who has some abdominal distension and still no passage of meconium, and we're at about the 30-hour mark. I threw all this to Todd Ponsky at Cincinnati Children's, and he said probably the same thing you guys are thinking. So that was the first case that they gave. So, I mean, right off the bat, you as someone who, you know, is more of like the general pediatric surgeon, necessarily not, not necessarily colorectal. I mean, what are your first thoughts when you have that little girl that's transferred to the team? Right. So you have concern for bowel obstruction. And so what did they get an x-ray next? And sure enough. Well, I would love to just get a plain abdominal x-ray. How about that? Let's do that. And funny that we have one up on the screen. Here we are. I knew it. I knew you would have one of those. Just knew it. Let's get an abdominal x-ray when in doubt, right? If you're listening to this in the Stay Current app, you could look at the same x-ray that Dr. Levitt and Dr. Frischer are looking at. Just scroll down. It's right there. And so when I look at plain films in a baby with abdominal distension, I... Obviously, you do your, your routine of looking at films and you look for outside lines and you might look for bony abnormalities, et cetera. But then when you start looking at the crux of the matter and looking at the gas patterns, I sort of start by trying to figure out, is this a proximal or distal problem? What do you do, Mark? Yeah, very similar. Um, you know, obviously people discuss the fact that you really can't tell what's distended, small bowel or large bowel. But I think, you know, when you have colonic distension, you can you can have a pretty good idea that this is a very distal obstruction. Um, so in looking at this image, I see some pretty impressive uh, gaseous distension. And in a patient with a normal anus, I'm very suspicious of the possibility of Hirschsprung's disease here. I showed the x-ray to Todd. Obviously on this x-ray, we can see all these dilated loops. You know, a baby like this, probably going to end up getting both. You probably get end up getting both an x-ray and then a contrast enema. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious what they did because every institution is different. And then here's what Dr. Levitt said. So I think the next step probably would be, um, uh, is to get a contrast study. At least I like to, I know in a lot of places, um, some might just go to a rectal biopsy right away. I um, like to um, have a, a map of what the colon is going to look like to sort of get a feeling where the transition zone um, might be. Of course, we have to make absolutely certain that this baby does not have enterocolitis because you don't want to do a contrast study in the presence of enterocolitis because you may perforate the baby. Uh, so enterocolitis could make things a little bit more complicated. Let's say this baby's impressively distended and maybe a little tender, and you might be entertaining enterocolitis. Is it okay to do an irrigation before you do the contrast enema? Is that okay? No, no, you got to treat the baby, and I would absolutely do irrigations, make the baby feel feel better. I don't think that's going to change the result of the, of the contrast study. I never really believed that. I also never really felt like you shouldn't do a rectal exam. You should. You have to make sure that the anus is normal. And this is not an anal stenosis or rectal atresia. 
and I would irrigate if the baby is distended. And then the contrast study can be done at any time. The contrast study is really sort of a, a map for the sur surgery. Um, most relevant, of course, is to rule out Hirschsprungs with a biopsy. I see. Resuscitate first. Got it. Treat the baby first. You don't have to do the contrast enema at 2 in the morning to get a diagnosis. You need to treat the baby, decompress the child, and get them feeling better. Let's get back to this patient now. We get this abdominal film. Looks like a distal obstruction of some sort. Could be meconiomalous, could be small left colon syndrome, drug-induced, etc. Are we ready for the contrast enema now? Yeah, I think we are, and I just want to reiterate that there are people out there that don't do contrast studies. They go right to the rectal biopsy. Um, again, my preference is to do a contrast study, but I, you know, I respect the the opinion of what that a contrast study might not be necessary, but I like it as a as a map. So I think for me, the next step of the baby as well is to do a contrast study. And well, I, like you mentioned I, uh, earlier, we do not rely on this contrast study for the diagnosis. Obviously, I think that's an obvious point. We use right. this as a roadmap with the suspicion of Hirschsprung's disease or maybe another diagnosis. So here we so are. So let's see. We, let's do we that. Have a contrast study in front of us. Boom. Again, if you're listening in the app, when Dr. Fisher said boom, that's probably when you should click on the next image, which is the contrast study. So demonstrated here is a water-soluble contrast study, both in AP view and cross-table view uh, in the center picture. And I think it's obvious that it helps us uh, with leaning towards a diagnosis, but it also might help in the operative planning. So let's talk about diagnosis first. So when Dr. Frischer looks at this image, what's the first thing that comes to his mind? Obviously, the rectosigmoid ratio. That is what we're all taught to look for when trying to evaluate for Hirschsprung's disease. And the theory behind that is that the rectum, which is going to be aganglionic, is, is in a spasm-like position and unrelaxed position and is narrow to circum circumference is diminished compared to the dilated, ganglionated portion of bowel above it. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay, so did Dr. Levitt see something else? The other thing that's very interesting about this image, and I agree, um, I agree that it seems that there's a transition point somewhere in the mid to upper sigmoid in the uh, proximal sigmoid and left colon look very dilated. But what's interesting is you see a lot of tortuosity, sort of hyperperistalsis in the rectum, um, which you shouldn't see normally. Um, and I think that is a classic finding that I see a lot um, with Hirschsprung's disease. There's like this uh, uh, hyper hypercontractility of the distal of the distal bowel where there's no ganglion cells and therefore spasm and inability to relax. But I would make the call here that the transition zone is most likely in the upper sigmoid. And I say that very carefully, you cannot nail exactly where the transition zone on the contrast study, but my gut tells me that we're probably going to find gold in the proximal sigmoid. Certainly the left colon looks quite good. Okay, so both of them agree that this is probably a transition point in the proximal sigmoid. But remember, we can't diagnose Hirschsprungs just based on this contrast study. So what's the next step? 
a history, an exam, looks a lot like Hirschsprung's disease. Smells a um, lot like Hirschsprung's disease. I suspect uh, irrigations have been started. The baby may be starting to feel better. The contrast study is done. We're both suspicious of proximal sigmoid transition. Um, it's time to do a biopsy, I think. Time to do a biopsy. Easier said than done for someone like Dr. Levitt or Dr. Frischer, who do these all the time. Here's what Todd had to say about suction rectal biopsies. I used to have a 100% success rate. Every time I squeezed it, I got a biopsy. And now I'll look, I'll crack it open, and there's nothing in there uh, a substantial amount of time. And uh, I think it has to do with where you push and how hard you push and how much you suction. So did they say what they use? I mean, how could they not? Yeah, so I um, this is a baby, so this is a good situation for a suction, um, a suction rectal biopsy. I don't think the baby needs an open biopsy in the OR. I think this can be done at the bedside with a, with a good um, suction a gun with a sharp blade. So just a little bit about the biopsy. I, I usually take it, I try to get three good biopsies for our pathologists when doing suction rectal biopsies. And the device we use comes with three capsules that allows for that. So um, you're hoping to get nice uh, specimens for your pathologist. And then I like to also review the pathology with the uh, pathologist and look under the microscope because there's always something to learn. Uh, and I think we could all teach each other in that fashion. So when I go and look at the micro under the microscope with the pathologist, um, there's some new techniques out there. Obviously, a lot of the um, a lot of what we're used to is looking at H and E stained uh, specimens and looking for ganglion cells. That's the bread and butter of this. There's some other staining called quick diff um, that some people use that sort of highlights ganglion cells a little bit better. Uh, it's newer out there, but I think first and foremost, we're looking for ganglion cells. And you're looking for ganglion cells in multiple levels to see that you have nice mature ganglion cells, numerous ganglion cells, and that is step one. Wait, did Dr. Fisher say multiple levels? I mean, like how many? When you do a biopsy, our, our criteria here in, in Washington is 100 levels. Um, no ganglion cells in any of the 100 levels. If you find a ganglion cell, you're done. It's not Hirschsprung's disease. People often ask me, there were not a lot of ganglion cells. There were hypoganglionic. I don't care. Is there a ganglion cell? It is not Hirschsprung's. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not some motility disorder to deal with, but it's not Hirschsprung's disease. You need no ganglion cells, zero, in 100 levels and nerve hypertrophy. And we define nerve hypertrophy, as I know you do, as more than 40 microns. And I think pathologists need to start measuring these, these nerves, um, these nerve trunks, I should say. Um, and, you, and now we can start talking about some of the pitfalls. And one of the pitfalls is, and this happens a lot, where the pathologist says no ganglion cells and there's no discussion about the nerves. And I know of cases um, and where patients have gotten operated on for Hirschsprung's disease in that scenario. And in fact, they didn't have Hirschsprung's disease. Yeah, what about you must have what about the level that you take the biopsy? Could that be a pitfall in that you might have no ganglion oh, yes. cells because you're too distal? 
Absolutely. So I think you can you can mess that up in two directions. If you're too distal and you're you're in the zone of the anal canal, everyone is aganglionic in that zone. That's right. Um, and and um, but you're not going to find hypertrophic nerves there. So if you find no ganglion cells and there's no comment on the nerves, that is not a specimen that is satisfactory. You cannot make a surgical judgment based on that specimen. If you find squamous epithelium, then that is very good confirmation that you were too low. And I've definitely seen biopsies that are too high. So you really need to know where are you taking that biopsy. My perfect location, I think, is about a half to one centimeter above the crypts. So you know for sure that you're in the columnar epithelium. Right. And the crypts obviously are above the dentate line. So you're at least a centimeter or two above the dentate line. Yes. The, the one other pitfall I wanted to mention is sometimes babies look to the world like Hirschsprung's disease. You do the biopsy and there are ganglion cells, but there are lots of eosinophils. This is a baby maybe that's a few weeks or a few months old. Now you're and looking at allergies, all, aren't you? So just to review, this was your run-of-the-mill straight shot, obviously in your face, Hirschsprung's disease on physical exam. And then the imaging that we got, we got an x-ray and then we got a contrast enema. Everything was pointing to Hirschsprung's. So you got to move forward with your biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. But at the same time, you got to keep your differential really broad. That's the only way that we can catch not just Hirschsprung's, but sometimes these other diagnoses that can kind of look like Hirschsprung's. So what about a scenario where, I don't know, it's not so straightforward? So the next case is a one-day-old, full-term baby, weighs uh, 3.9 kilograms, and presents with significant abdominal distension and bilious emesis. So I think we've discussed our basic workup and resuscitation, and now we get a plain abdominal x-ray, and this is what we see. Again, if you're in the Stay Current app, go ahead and click on that last picture. Look at this x-ray. You might kind of react to it like Todd did. There's definitely, it's not your standard Hirschsprung's picture. Um, so a head scratcher for Todd. Do you think it was for Dr. Levitt too? Interesting. A little bit more complicated than the first case. Yes, not so obvious. Not so obvious. But we do not have so much time. We're actually out of it. So if you want to hear this next case, you're going to have to wait. And now you're saying, Rod, what am I going to do with this time? I'm on the edge of my seat. Well, download the Stay Current and Pediatric Surgery app. You can listen to other podcasts like this. You can watch technique videos. You can go to our brand new channel in the app. It's a colorectal channel, podcast videos, technique videos, guidelines, anything that you want, all in the app. Until next time, I'm Rod from Cincinnati Children's. And remember, knowledge should be free.